esteemed guests, members of the judiciary, siblings at the bar, you are all very welcome to our celebration of International Women's Day 2022. My name is Aoife McNichol and I am the chair of the Equality Resilience Committee at the Bar of Ireland. And um, as you will no doubt know, this year's International Women's Day theme is Break the Bias, um, so which is a very powerful concept and one that should speak to us all. And indeed, for the last two years, we've been in a sort of survival mode, uh, adapting to the changes brought about so suddenly by the pandemic. Uh, and we are now at the, the light at the end of that particular tunnel in respect of that challenge. And yet different challenges are emerging uh, to take centre stage. The horrifying reality that's going on in the in, in Ukraine, uh, the spiralling chaos of homelessness here, uh, to name but two. And in the face of these types of problems, it's so easy to get overwhelmed and to feel powerless. But there are things that we can control. We can control how we live how we interact with others, the expectations that we set for the society we want to live in. And that's where this theme um, really can be, can be very powerful to break the bias. What kind of um, society or indeed what kind of bar do we want to be members of? Um, and what biases do we carry that operate against those goals? So I suppose to answer those questions will require us, um, each of us to challenge our own assumptions and behaviours, um, both within the bar and individually. And I suppose to encourage uh, rather than challenge each other to break those biases. Um, one of the ways we've begun to do that at the bar uh, this year is a, a series of webinars uh, that really opened conversations about um, issues like disability and race within the legal profession. And these conversations um, will hopefully serve as the foundation for the bar we want to create. And um, for example, in our event on race um, in the legal profession in January of this year, we spoke with um, Simon Regis from England and Wales uh, Bar about, I suppose, their experience and um, I suppose the the real systemic issues that they've seen in relation to race. For example, um, a particular problem for black and Asian women who earn the least at the bar and who experience bullying and harassment four times more uh, than their white male um, colleagues. We have an opportunity to learn from um, that type of long history um, and I suppose we're in the very unique position to be able to do better and to to start from scratch essentially, because we don't have the same, um, I suppose, uh, centuries um, of issues that, that the UK is dealing with. Disabilities, um, you know, we, we spoke with our um, colleagues who um, have disabilities and who are practicing um, at the bar and within the solicitor's profession. One in seven people in Ireland have a disability and only 36% of people with a disability aged between 20 and 64 are working. So I suppose by starting this conversation about how disabilities affect legal practitioners and their work um, and, and indeed how it might put someone off coming to the bar in the first place, uh, we really hope um, to start breaking down biases held within the system and um, that, that we personally may, may hold. So uh, I suppose in terms of um, the Equality and Resilience Committee and the work to update you on the work that we've been doing since this time last year, um, 
we are uh, hoping to launch our equality action plan and our, our equitable briefing policy in the coming months. Um, they've, they've been a long time coming and that there's been a lot of engagement um, and positive engagement in relation to them. So watch this space for that launch. Um, I would like to extend a particular welcome this evening and express my gratitude to our esteemed guest, um, Professor Louise Richardson. Whilst our preference is to be able to welcome our guests in person and in the King's Inns, which we see uh, you will see behind um, Emer shortly, uh, we also see the benefit of this new advent of online events. Um, otherwise, this uh, we may not have been able to link up our schedules uh, to have Professor uh, Richardson here with us from New York. Um, Today, So I, I, I thank you for joining us and I also thank our sister Emer Woodfull uh, who will lead tonight's conversation with Professor Richardson. And so without further ado from me, I will hand you over to Emer to properly introduce this evening's event. Hello everyone and thank you very much for joining us and thank you to Aoife and my colleagues in the Bar of Ireland's Equality and Resilience Committee for asking me to interview Professor Richardson. It's a real privilege. As Aoife said, we'd hope to be in the room behind me, but hey, we can't be this year, but the light is at the end of the tunnel, as Aoife says, and hopefully we will be there next year to hear the keynote address. Um, well now, how to introduce Professor Louise Richardson. You know, usually it's not that difficult to summarize even an eminent woman's trailblazing career. But there's just so much to say and hear about this woman's life. That's fascinating, really, in so many ways. She's a mother, wife, passionate educator, author, thinker, cage rattler for sure, AstraZeneca negotiator, and thanks for that, and golfer, world-renowned expert on terrorism who addressed the U.S. Senate after 9-11, lifelong friend of Seamus Heaney, and she's someone who has shown tremendous resilience in various life challenges that you'll hear about. And as for those accolades, well, you won't be surprised to hear that this Waterford woman and Trinity history graduate scaled every academic height around. She did a scholarship master's in UCLA. I like this bit, partly and very wisely chosen, I would say, because she liked the look of the pictures in the brochure of the California beaches. And then maybe armed with even some nifty surfing skills, she followed this shortly afterwards with a master's and doctorate in government in Harvard, where she immediately became an assistant professor in international relations and where over 20 years, she rose to the most senior position. Despite all of this, and despite having been voted best teacher by the students in Harvard, she upped sticks in 2009 to become the first woman vice chancellor ever of the renowned St. Andrews University in Scotland. Then she moved to Oxford in 2016 to become its first woman vice chancellor. But she's not quite done yet because next year she moves back to the US to become president of the Carnegie Corporation, one of America's oldest philanthropic corporations. Professor Louise Richardson, it's a real pleasure to meet you and thank you so much for joining us this evening for us, this afternoon from you from New York, just to further confound us, you're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed, Emma. And if I may clarify at the start, I think when we hear the words vice chancellor, 
maybe it sounds like a bit like a secondary position, but I know that's very much not the case. And if you might clarify, it's akin to being the CEO. And I understand the chancellor is more an honorary position, if I'm correct, in universities. Yes, that's right. The, the vice chancellor is, in fact, the CEO would otherwise be called president. And indeed, many British universities are now renaming their vice chancellor as vice chancellor and president. We have a wonderful chancellor. I kid him that he's like the queen and I'm like the prime minister. His is a symbolic position. He's Lord Patton of Barnes. He's elected by every graduate of the university for life. So it's a... Uh, but you, do, you don't call him the queen to his face, I gather. <laughs> uh, no. No, definitely not. Now, if I may come back, because there is so much to cover in your life, it's pretty extraordinary. But if I start at the beginning, which is a good place to start, you were the um, second child in a family of seven children and the eldest daughter. I understand from what I've read about you, even though we've never met, you say you had a very secure and stable family life in Tremor. Yes, that's right. Um, I also say that there's nothing like having, I grew up with three brothers and three sisters, uh, nothing like having three brothers to explode the myth of male superiority right from the beginning. So I never really accepted, it was just anathema, the very idea that there was anything my brothers could do that I couldn't. So, uh, but yes, Tremor is a wonderful seaside town. We grew up in the house my mother had grown up in and um, we were related to many of the people around us. Um, so, yes, it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, you showed early signs of difference because I understand when you were a little one, you went uptown in your brother's com communion suit, which led one of the neighbours to say, take that child to a doctor, doctor Mrs. Yes, when, when I told that story on the radio, my mother, I was listening to it with my mother and she corrected me. It was his confirmation suit, not his communion oh, suit. But, but okay. yes, I did go into my parents' bedroom and took out his confirmation suit. I felt it was a grave injustice that he had this wonderful suit. So I put it on and proceeded to walk down the town where I was spotted by a friend of my mother's who returned me with instructions to take me to a psychiatrist. Which he didn't do, but there were early signs of difference. <laughs> well, I think that was again, just um, not wanting to concede anything to my older brother that uh, I couldn't have really. And you went to the Ursuline convent and your ex education uh, was interesting because I understand that you were told you had to iron, you were taught to iron men's shirt collars and hankies. Well, to be fair to the Ursuline, uh, I went to the Ursuline for secondary school. It was primary school where we were taught uh, ironing and cooking, uh, starting with men's handkerchiefs and graduating to, to men's shirts. Um, so uh, the Ursuline was again where my mother had, had been to school and indeed my grandmother. My first day there, I was introduced to a nun who had taught both my mother and my grandmother, uh, but that was secondary schools. But I don't think you did too much earning of colours later on. I, I think I can fairly say I've never earned a shirt in my life. And I did say uh, at that, I do remember saying in that classroom that I would never marry any man who expected me to iron his shirt. And I'm happy to say I didn't. My husband believes in uh, being wrinkled. 
Good, good, good for that. That's a good situation. Well, I know you, you, your family didn't have ambitions for you, though. You, you were the first of your, of your family to go to university. And when you asked your father what his ambitions were for you, for the girls, he said that one would enter the convent and that none of you would end up on the shelf. Yes, that's right. I mean, my, my father, whom I adore to his dying day, um, yes, was a, a very traditional Irishman. Uh, he was devoted to his four daughters, but certainly didn't ever imagine that we would have professional careers. So I, I did once ask him his, uh, what were his ambitions for his four daughters, and he clearly never thought about it. So he thought about it for a while, and he came back and said, yes, that at least one enter the convent and none end up on the shelf. So um, he only achieved half of that ambition in, in the sense that I'm afraid none of us entered the convent. Um, well, there's time yet. <laughs> never, know, never say never. Um, now, I, you showed early signs of feistiness because when you were a teenager, I think the only time, if I may characterize it, you had a run in with your mother was when she forbade you. I think she sent you to your room on Bloody Sunday because you were saying, I'm going up there. Well, yes, I, I mean, I think any of us who were alive then remembers what an extraordinary febrile time that was and what an outrage uh, Bloody Sunday was. And as you remember, there was to be a, a civil rights march the following week in Nuri. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother had a cousin who'd married a girl from Nuri, so I knew there were some distant relations up in Nuri. And I was just consumed with anger at this atrocity and wanted to do something. So I announced I was going up to Nuri, which was pretty preposterous because I had no way of getting there really. But I, I was, I, I followed politics passionately. I, I kept scrapbooks. I read all the newspapers, even though at this stage I was still really quite young. Um, so yes, uh, it was unusual, I guess, for a girl of my age to be so passionately committed to politics. It, and my parents, yeah, it was a fairly non-political family. It sounds like certainly well non-traditional. Then you um, moved to, you went to Trinity and you did your honours history degree. And I think that was the very early days of when the ban on Catholics attended Trinity had been lifted. Isn't that correct? But I think you felt a bit out of place in Trinity in some way from what I've read. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there were only about uh, three of us who were Catholics, even though, as you as you know, the Catholic Church, uh, or Trinity had admitted Catholics since the 18th century, but it was the Catholic Church forbade Catholics until about 1970. I was there in the mid 70s. So um, there were very few Catholics in my class. It was a very different environment to anything I was used to, but I, uh, I was ambitious. Trinity was known as the best, with no disrespect to any non-Trinity graduates in the in the audience. Uh, so I wanted to go there, and I'm very glad I did because it was such a a different culture, such an environment I was unfamiliar with, and I think that was a great learning experience. So I, I wouldn't trade a, a day of it. And you worked part time. I think you were a cocktail waitress in the Burlington, and you worked in the library as well when you were That's in Trinity. Right. Yes, I you worked. No silver spoon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yes, the cocktail, uh, the Burlington, I worked there four nights a week as a cocktail waitress and then oh. early in the morning shelving books six mornings a week. Um, oh. So uh, yes, because yeah, uh, university was expensive. I was one of seven kids, so I didn't want my parents to have to pay for it. And then um, I just love this bit that there was a scholarship advertised in the Irish Times. That's hard to believe for you could go to university anywhere in the world fully paid and you pick 
if I'm what I've read is correct, UCLA, brand new campus, California beaches, but you didn't take Harvard or Yale. Tell me about why. It's very interesting. Well, um, I have to say, if there are any members of the audience connected to the Rotary Foundation, I will be indebted to the Rotary Foundation for the rest of my days. Uh, this was a Rotary scholarship. And um, that's right. You could study any subject in the world you liked, any place in the world you liked for a year, fully paid. There were a few constraints. You could, couldn't name any more than three in one country. Um, and I saw this little ad and I thought, well, let me apply for this. This would be very good experience you know, competing with on a national level. It never, ever occurred to me that I would ever actually win the thing. So um, I looked up, we had an ancient world book encyclopedia at home and I had to put down six universities and I put down the Sorbonne, the University of Geneva, because I had some French. And then I looked up the universities in America that I'd heard of. I looked up Harvard and Yale. And according to the encyclopedia, they were men only. Um, I hadn't realized that the encyclopedia was so, so ancient, older than Harvard and Yale, having changed to be co-ed. Um, so I thought I couldn't put those down. So I was looking uh, for, um, uh, I put down Georgetown. And um, anyway, I put down, I thought the most exotic place in the world was sunny Southern California. So I put down California and lo and behold, um, I got this wonderful, wonderful scholarship to California. So there you went in the 70s, late 70s, probably you got yeah. surf, sunshine, the Beach Boys. Did you feel a great sense of liberation? Absolutely. It was wonderful. Um, people were fascinated by my accent. I just loved the fact that nobody cared who, who my family were. Um, and I also love the fact that in America, um, you didn't have to hide that you were smart or that you worked hard. I mean, in, in Trinity, to be socially acceptable, you concealed if you worked hard. Nobody wanted to be a swat or a brain. It wasn't cool. Whereas in the States, the, the assumption was that you worked hard and you were proud of it because nobody's making you do anything. And I found that pretty liberating. Plus, just this life, uh, the Rotarians were extremely generous to me. And I actually, after my year there, spent um, at one point spent three months traveling from the West Coast, got a $25 bus pass, Greyhound bus, and spent three mm. months traveling from the West Coast to the East Coast, staying with Rotarian families and speaking at local Rotary clubs. And it was an extraordinary insight into America, the same socioeconomic slice, but with huge regional variations. And I think those of us outside the US don't appreciate just how how different the difference the cultures and the different states are so again got exposed to all of the us again the same socioeconomic slice so constrained but it was a it was a fabulous time yeah. mm. and then you went to harvard where you specialized in terrorism and i'm going to come to that shortly but i'm looking about the enormous life challenges that were presented to you around the birth of two of your children. I know you have two children, Fiona, there's Kira and Fiona and Rory. And tell me about the, the births. I think you were, you were in Harvard at that stage, if I'm correct. Yes, uh, I was pregnant with Kira. Uh, I, in fact, uh, I filed my doctoral dissertation on the day she was due. So um, to any academics in the audience, I, I'm a, I've always been a firm believer in deadlines. I've always maintained it <laughs> six months earlier. I'd have finished six months earlier and I'd have taken six months longer if she was due six months later. So anyway, um, 
So yes, the delivery went badly wrong and uh, she had to be medevaced out of Boston, which was unprecedented, onto uh, an experimental life support system in New York, uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York. So I sort of, uh, somehow date my loss of innocence to them. That was a, a very difficult time, but she survived. And uh, I think she had a heart and lung transplant, didn't she? Yes, a bypass. No, not a bypass. transplant. A, a simultaneous heart and lung bypass, mm -hmm. yes. Um, uh, but she did, as I say, miraculously uh, reco recover. Well, it wasn't a miracle. It was, it was extremely uh, talented uh, yes. doctors who uh, convened. And there was this, uh, as I say, experimental life support system. So that, um, so she made it. And uh, for a long time, of course, we didn't, we anticipated that there would be long-term uh, side effects of the you know, prolonged deprivation of oxygen. But actually, um, she turned out fine. And she went to Harvard and went on to great things herself. I think she's about 32 now, is that correct? That's and exactly. living in London, is it? That's exactly right, okay. yes. Um, so then you had your next child, Fiona, and then your third child, Rory. That was an extremely difficult time for you. Uh, well, yes, uh, Fiona's uh, pregnancy was thankfully quite normal, um, and uh, but I was diagnosed with cancer when uh, I was pregnant with Rory. So that posed a problem because I, I had surgery. The surgery was not successful because the cancer had metastasized. So, um, but the treatment was not compatible with being pregnant. So I had to decide uh, what to do, uh, whether or not to terminate the pregnancy. And I decided not to, it was again, a, a difficult choice, um, uh, but decided to proceed with the pregnancy and have Rory um, you know, a couple of weeks early, as soon as um, as soon as it was clear that he would be completely fine, um, so that I could start the treatment. So he turned out to be fine, and um, I did too, which was wonderful. But it, it was quite, quite, quite something to to have to experience and survive, really. Um, yes, and it was all done while I was a junior faculty member at Harvard, and 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 I do think. You know, as this is International Women's Day, I, I do think, you know, the reason that every profession you look at is based like a pyramid is precisely because of the difficulty mm -hmm. of combining a career with young children. So, um, yes, my uh, having to, uh, well, ha dealing with these various illnesses and, and young children was particularly acute, but um I've always maintained anything I've done since, people generally are amazed by of workaholic I am or how energetic I am and I think there's nothing I've ever done this harder than having three young children and trying to keep a, a career alive as well so you know I think as a society we need to do far more the disproportionate share of the burden of child rearing which is the ultimate public good is is borne by women and it shouldn't be no no for sure it shouldn't be um, and then if I may spool forward, you reach the pinnacle of your career in Harvard, and then you say, 2009, I'm off to St. Andrews. Why on earth? Well, um, the, the interim step was moving from being a professor in the government department at Harvard to being executive dean of the Radcliffe Institute. Radcliffe had historically been the, the uh, women's college at Oxford, um, at Harvard, sorry. Yes. Um, and so we were, the goal was to transform it into a center for advanced study. So throughout my academic career, 
I was always looked upon as somebody who had kind of administrative skills, I think mainly from juggling kids and, and career. But anyway, so I gradually gotten more and more senior roles or administrative roles, the most senior being the one at Radcliffe. Um, now, while I was doing that, I also served on the International Advisory Board for the Center for the Study of Terrorism at St. Andrews. St. Andrews is the oldest uh, center for the study of terrorism. So um, I knew St. Andrews, not particularly well. I knew the university. And um, when they went looking for a president, um, they offered it to me. And I was so surprised. And I thought, you know, I'm so different. Again, they, they never had a woman. They hadn't had a Catholic since the Reformation. They never had a foreigner. I was so different. I thought if they're really willing to make a punt on me like this, I should, um, I should give it a shot. And, uh, and Rory at that point was about to start secondary school. So I thought if I'm going to do anything different, I've got to do it now or wait till he finishes school. So I said, uh, let's give this a shot. And uh, I was very glad I did. And you're very glad you did. And you certainly did. And it was so bizarre how it all worked out because your young lad, Rory, at that stage was in secondary school, a high school in the States. He went with you to St. Andrews. After six months, he decides, I don't like this. He goes back to your husband, your Jevon in the States. Then your third daughter, I think your second daughter, Fiona, she was to join you as well. And then she was going to study in St. Andrews, but then she got a place in Harvard. So she wasn't there. Your husband was going to commute. So there you were at the end of the day, all on your own, you in St. Andrews. Did you ever look out the window on a wet day in St. Andrews, as they're known to be up there and say, what am I doing with my life? Is it worth all this? Um, uh, probably, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, yes, the plan was the whole family was going to move in six months and six months in Tom and the three kids were back in America. So um, again, you know, had I, funnily enough, Tom and I were talking about that this, this weekend, had I known that we would be commuting for 14 years and um, I would never have moved to the UK but we didn't know that and you accommodate and, and um, things work out but you adapt so you know I do say to young people there, there are trade-offs I mean I would not recommend being married to somebody with an ocean between you but you know you you manage and we both it means that we both work extremely hard but it means when we're together we have a very good time and um we had a rule that we had to see each other every month, which until the pandemic we were able to, to do. And Rory did eventually come back to Scotland. And then subsequently, Kira, my eldest, moved to, to the UK as well. Yes, she's in London, yes. And um, then you got into a spot of bother, unsurprisingly, with the renowned Royal and Ancient St. Andrews, the wonderful golf course. Um, they didn't follow their established uh, custom of admitting you as an honorary member. Now, I know at the time, I felt you kind of brushed it off saying, well, you know, I have a university to run. Um, I see it as a distraction. But I think you were not indifferent to the snub at the end of the day. Well, yes, early on when, it, you know, when I arrived, it was a huge brouhaha. And yes, that was my point. This is, this is absurd. I did, um, I did try to talk privately to the club and say, this is silly, let's, we can, let's figure this out. It's madness to have TV cameras outside my office, TV cameras outside yours. Wow. Uh, let's, let's do something sensible, but, uh, they were completely unwilling to, to budge. So I just said, I didn't come to golf, Scotland to play golf. I came to run a university. However, I always said that I would speak about it once 
and because I felt I owe that to the to the female students. And but I didn't want to say it right at the beginning of my tenure, and this become the issue of my um, oh. leadership of St Andrews. I had too many important things I wanted to accomplish. So quite late on in my tenure, I was asked uh, to do the golf correspondent of the New York Times asked to do an interview with me. And I thought she was very good and very thoughtful. So I did. And that's where I said, you know, this is completely inappropriate and actually is harmful in the sense that, um, you know, every uh, as, as a university president, one is interested in raising money, every uh, potential donor would like nothing more than to be able for me to take them to the Royal and Ancient Golf Club. So when they'd come, I'd be in the preposterous position of having to mm. arrange for a male colleague to take them to the Royal Nation. So I said all this to the New York Times and, and then the, the whole issue blew up again. Um, but I was quite, as I say, strategic about how I managed it. I didn't talk about it mm. for several years because I didn't want to be defined by it. But I also didn't want to leave without making the case that this is not acceptable. Um, so they did eventually have a vote and did vote to admit women. Yeah. Um, they pointedly did not include me because they deeply resented me for having put them oh. in this position they didn't want to be in. Um, but I saw that as a result, so I was pretty pleased. Yes, it was a result. And you're interesting, you're quite strategic then in how you managed it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. And um, also for anyone who hasn't been to St. Andrews, uh, the, I, I, I know the course was like something like the clubhouse was something like 600 yards from where you were living. And yes. St. Andrews kind of is the golf course. And you well, were responsible yeah. for a lot of employment. It's a small place, but St. Andrews is, is the golf course, isn't it? Well, it's the golf course and the university. We're the only yes, two yes. things in town, absolutely. But they're inextricably linked is what I'm saying. It's, yes. It's not indeed, like a normal yeah. town where a golf course might be a couple of K outside the town or something. It's very oh, much no, different. this was, I walked past it every day. It yeah. was, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just while we're, we're talking about issues, um, I know you're not in favour, you spoke in 2021 to the Oxford students in the video measures of affirmative action for women. But I suppose I'm wondering why, how you, you've spoken also of ensuring that there can be a level playing field. But I'm wondering, how can you have that ever without positive discrimination? Um, well, my, my mantra is that... Um, all that women need to succeed is a, a loving playing field. I worry about quotas uh, because uh, um, the fear is that the women who will be see themselves and be seen by others is only there because they fit the quota. I think if you look at the history of women's advancement, and this is particularly true, in fact, in Ireland, the, the women's advancement in education came about through passage of laws not designed for women, but designed to recognize merit. Um, and that's all we need. And, and how do we define merit? Um, I think we need a broader definition. It's not just people who look like us, that we don't just appoint people who look like us. So we have to be open to appointing people who are different from us. But I, I would hate to be a quota, a woman who was... Uh, so, but, the, you know, it's a... It's a, uh, it's a difficult position. I, I'm not on the barricades on it. And I think there are a lot worse things than than positive discrimination, frankly. Yes, yes, it is a difficult, it's a difficult one to, to, to figure out really what is the right thing to do. And um, now I'm going to come to terrorism because this is really the plank of so much of your work. And you wrote the seminal book in um, 
2006, what terrorists want, understanding the enemy containing the threat. And that really cemented your reputation as an international expert. Now, you, I know you found it was a lonely endeavor. You, there you are working away in terrorism, maybe not too much interest in you. Then 9-11 happens, you're all over the American networks and you testify in the Senate. So um, you suddenly became center stage at that point. That's right. I mean, until then, uh, terrorism was a very marginalized field. There were very, very few people studying terrorism. I remember my head of department saying to me one time, Louise, you've got to drop this terrorism stuff. Nobody cares. It's, it's, it's suicide. It's career suicide. Um, mm. and, and I rather self-righteously said, you know, well, why do you think I became an academic? It wasn't for the high salaries. It was to work on the things I care about. And I care about this. So I'm sticking with it. Um, and then, as you say, after 9-11, suddenly um, you know, it, it became, yeah, and money was pouring in, the enormous interest, and certainly uh, it transformed my life, yes. Yes, yes, it certainly did transform your life. And you had what might have been considered at the time somewhat unorthodox methods in that you maybe one of the earlier people to say you must meet with terrorists and you set up a, a secret conference, a highly secret conference in Paris where you met with terrorists and or activists. And I think what I found very interesting, I think the activists stroke terrorists found the academics more terrorizing in the role play than they were themselves. Tell me how that worked out. Um, well, I don't think, it, certainly it's an unorthodox method post 9-11, but of mm. the small number of us who were engaged in the field Prior to 9-11, I, I don't think it was that unorthodox to, to actually meet terrorists, talk to them. Um, because most of them, of course, passionately believe in the justice of what they're doing and are very happy to try to persuade others about it. So uh, the, the Paris conference, yeah, I was one of a group of us who, who organized it, and, and we brought representatives of different um nationalist terrorist groups. Yeah, I think one can generalize across different types of, of terrorist groups. So um, we had people like the ETA, the PLO, the FARC, mm -hmm. the Tamil Tigers, and so on. Um, and so we ran it two ways. The first, like a conventional academic conference, I remember giving a paper on um, what drives a decision to escalate to a new level of violence or a new, less constrained target. And then the very senior member of the Basque ETA was the respondent to my paper and said, well, you're right about this, but actually not about this and so on. So just like any academic conference. But the other part of it was we had written a number of scenarios. Again, we were trying to, I really wanted to understand what drives a terrorist decision to escalate to a new level of violence. Because of course, the nightmare scenario is that they would ever escalate to you know, chemical or biological or indeed nuclear weapons. Um, so we had a, a couple of, of um, we had these scenarios and we had teams and they were mixed academic and activist teams. And, and what rapidly became clear was that uh, once, once a liberal, always a liberal, once a hawk, always a hawk. So uh, being the liberal, I was always arguing for, for compromise and negotiation. Even, you know, I was part of a terrorist, a Chechen terrorist cell in Moscow. That was the, that was the scenario we created. Whereas, you know, a very conservative academic who was also on the group, um, who we all suspected of feeding back to, to various parts of the US government, what was going on at this group. But in any event, he was saying, no, no, we gotta, we gotta get their children, we gotta kill their, their women, their children, 
and he was the hawk, always the hawk. So some of the activists were actually, or, or terrorists, quite surprised to see this, to see the academics being much quicker to resort to violence than they would have been. Interesting. And just looking now at Ukraine and thinking, I'm wondering, is there such a thing? I've read your definitions and I led, listened to your really interesting TED talk on terrorism. I think it was in 2014 that I would highly recommend to anyone with an interest in anything, really. Um, but I'm wondering what constitutes, can there be state terrorism? I'm looking at Ukraine and say, for example, OK, what's happening in Ukraine is as it's happening. But say if Ukraine activists went up and started bombing subways in Moscow, they would certainly be labelled terrorists most likely, wouldn't they? But is there such a thing as state terrorism in your view? Well, um, what Russia is doing at the moment is a war crime. We're not short of um, descriptions, both legal and, and mm -hmm. narrative for what Russia is doing. Um, and so if there were such a thing as state terrorism, Russia would undoubtedly be doing it. Um, I certainly in my work, my work was focused on sub-state actors, not groups, precisely because we have the whole panoply of international law to help us adjudicate the behavior of states. Yes. Uh, so uh, so um, I focused on sub-state actors. Now, the behaviorists of states, I think, is the moral equivalent of terrorism. Um, but I think it's unhelpful if we start laboring everything we don't like, whether it's a a group of six in the Amazon jungle or the Russian government, if they're all labeled terrorism, the term starts to lose all meaning very quickly. Yes, I see. Uh, yes. So, so yes, I prefer to be more focused in, in how I use it. And yes, so on the Ukrainian, let's imagine the Ukrainian setting a bomb on a on a, a Moscow subway, I, I think that would indeed be an act of terrorism. And the reason it would be because it's indiscriminate targeting of, of non-combatants, of civilians. Now, it's a separate issue how you want to evaluate the morality of that act in the context in which they take it, in which their country's civilians are being uh, bombed in a, at an industrial scale by, by Moscow. Um, but that's a separate question, I think, the morality of it to whether or not it's, it's actually a terrorist act. Now, I'm going to move on to um, education. If I have time, I'll come back to this area. It's just so wide. And I know you when you were going for the job in Oxford, um, you were asked about elitism in third level education, and you have a very passionate views in relation to access to education and making it more accessible. I know you've got a program in Oxford. Mm -hmm. And um, tell me, I know you are also against um, subsidised fees at third level. So tell me about this, a little bit about this. Well, well just on that last point first, um, you know, when I was at Harvard, I argued unsuccessfully for the abolition of fees, saying anybody smart enough to get into Harvard shouldn't have to pay anything. And, and I thought that would be such a powerful message to every smart young kid across America, you know, such an incentive to try and get into Harvard where they wouldn't have to pay anything. And the Harvard fundraising team is second to none in the world. I said they can, they can then try and fleece the wealthy parents to, to contribute, but we don't, you know, Harvard is so rich, it doesn't need the money. Anyway, I didn't get anywhere there. I then went to Scotland where all third level education is free. And I thought this is the ideal that I always you know, advocated and discovered that actually it is, is a smaller number of poor kids actually go to third level education than in England where they do pay fees, which made me realize I'd been a bit naive in thinking about the impact of, of not having fees. 
Um, the reality is socioeconomic disadvantage occurs so much earlier in life that uh, kids from poor background are just not even thinking about going to an elite institution like St. Andrews. Um, so it's not so much that I don't, in an ideal world, of course, all education would be free forever, but it, it, for everybody at any stage in life, but we don't live in a, an ideal world, so you have to make trade-offs. So it seems to me that uh, money should never be a barrier to third level education. And that's what I've sought to do both in St. Andrews and in Oxford, where you know, we have um, dramatically increased, uh, was fourfold, I believe, in St. Andrews, and uh, certainly fourfold in terms of um, black students in, in St. Andrews and very significantly in, in the poorest kids and ethnic minorities as well. And we've done that through a whole raft of scholarships, programs, a whole raft of different initiatives. Um, and it's taken a lot of work and we're, we're far from where we need to be, but we've made extraordinary progress. So um, so that's a more nuanced position than just saying, I don't, I don't think university education should be free. In a world of trade-offs, um, I would focus more on ensuring that the those who are, who are deprived are able to have competitive applications to the top universities. And you, I know you believe the role of the university really is to question and to make students feel uncomfortable. And you spoke out against the removal in Oriel College of the statue of Cecil Rhodes, who may have been seen as um, the founding member or certainly of apartheid. He was, he was very much considered that. Um, and you spoke about that, saying, no, you shouldn't be taking the statue down. Uh, that's right. And, and uh, because I think it's a, I think we need to confront our history. I don't think it's actually fair to say, I'm not going to defend Rhodes, but I don't think it's fair to say that he was a founding uh, well, part of the foundation of apartheid, although he's been charged. Well, he was a diamond miner in South Africa. He was a diamond miner in South Africa, yes. yes and he, he believed in the supremacy of the British, I think, as far as I recall as well. He did, and although... Uh, he did. I mean, this isn't the place to get into the complex history yeah, of Rhodes, and there's that's a that's a that could keep us busy <laughs> for another hour. But the point is, um, my point was, we cannot erase our history. We uh, Rhodes made very generous contributions to Oxford. He funded the Rhodes scholarships. We still take those scholarships. Um, his statue, unlike yeah, the Rhodes Must Fall movement came after a similar movement in Cape Town where the Rhodes statue was right at the center of the entrance to the University of Cape Town. Um, the Rhodes statue in Oxford is three stories high on the side of a building. I spent my first two Sundays in Oxford looking for it. I couldn't find it. Okay. Uh, I had to ask a tour guide <laughs> to help me. So, um, uh, and I worry about uh, trying to erase history. Rather, I think we need to understand what role Rhodes played in our history in all its complexity. Um, uh, he insisted that Rhodes scholarships incidentally be open to blacks as well as, as whites. Um, and uh, I think, where do we go? Where do we stop with taking down statues? And, and I ask our students to think about, just think a hundred years from now, when our successors look back on us, uh, will they want to erase us because you know, we sat on our hands while evidence of climate change was overwhelming? because we allowed extraordinary inequalities to exist all over the world, because we in the 
in the West consumed vaccine booster and gazillions of vaccines stored while across sub-Saharan Africa, vaccination rates are still in single digits. Who are we to set ourselves up as the moral arbiters? Because if our subsequent generations treat us the way we're treating our predecessors, we'll be erased too. So, you know, I am an historian. I think it's just ahistorical to erase um, statues reflecting a time. I mean, I, I, I always remember my first time walking past uh, the Houses of, of Parliament in, in London and seeing this massive statue of Oliver Cromwell. And I went to look at who the statue was. And I thought, oh my God, that's, you know, as you know, growing up in Ireland, Cromwell is second only to Baltimore. And um, I thought how fascinating that um, he could be honored uh, here and reviled uh, in Ireland. Um, so, so that's my position on roads. I, I mean, I, I do think, you know, one shouldn't have a blanket policy on most issues. Most issues are nuanced. I think in some of the southern states, um, you know, Confederate statues were after the fact established as a deliberate effort to, to, to uh, rub the, if you like, to rub people's noses in, in their, um, in the fact that they were unequal. Um, so I think one has to treat different statues differently, but within Oxford, a place where we, we still spend Rose money, uh, I felt it was not appropriate to tear down the statue. And you, I have mentioned at the start there, you, I understand you were a negotiator in the AstraZeneca link. Tell me about that. How that so um, what happened back in, you know, it would have been January of, it was 2020 now, um, the, the head of our medical sciences division came to me and he said, you know, we've got some people who've been working on vaccines in our, our Jenner group. Uh, they've been working on vaccines for years. They think they might be able to do something with this coronavirus that's emerging, but they have absolutely no money. They need, they need to manufacture these things. They need to trial them. Is there any way we could underwrite their work? They said, if this thing works, we get the money back. But uh, so I said, yes, that we will. We'll find a million pounds. We gave them a million pounds and to enable them to keep working. And um, subsequently then, of course, the government came in and various foundations and so on came in. So they were developing this and we started to thinking about what if it works? Um, the first thing we realized is we do not, as a university, have the capacity to manufacture and distribute this vaccine if it works. So one thing we could do is say, um, we just make, make the information freely available as soon as we have it so that anybody can manufacture this anywhere. And, you know, claim no, no patents, no, no intellectual property. And we worried about that because we thought, uh, you know, a manufacturing vaccines is very difficult. And we were worried about the liability if people tried to manufacture them and they ended up killing people. So we thought, what else can we do? We said, let's see if we can find um, a pharma company who would be willing to manufacture at risk. Not again, we wanted to ensure that, you know, before we knew if it worked, you have to manufacture large doses and trial them and all the rest. We said, we just cannot handle all of that, manage the, the regulatory environment and the whole host of it. So we went looking for pharma companies. But in speaking to our academics, the people working on these vaccines had worked in Africa. We have large research groups in Kenya and Thailand and Cambodia working on infectious disease. The work that was being done was building on their work. 
you know, our medics who've been out in those countries said, look, you know, these are the guys who'll never get the vaccines. So we need to, we want to make sure that this vaccine is a vaccine for the world. We're not just making money out of it. We want to make it a vaccine for the world. So then we had to find a pharma company who was willing to manufacture at risk without making a profit. Um, so we eventually, we talked to a couple, we eventually got AstraZeneca was willing to do this. And so yes, three of us negotiated the contract with AstraZeneca and the deal was that they would manufacture it uh, and sell it at cost in low-income countries forever. But I also didn't want to be um, foolish about it because Oxford always looks back to the discovery of penicillin. We discovered penicillin mm -hmm. in the 40s. We sent over the, uh, all the information and IP to the US where drug companies developed it and became rich forever. I've often thought if only we kept some of those royalties, think of the medical research we could have done in the interim. So I didn't want to be stupid about it. So we said, but we also didn't want to profiteer from a pandemic. So we said, you have to distribute it at cost for the duration of the pandemic in all over the world. But if this becomes like the annual flu vaccine and you want to make money in wealthy countries, that's fine with us. So that was the deal AstraZeneca signed up to and that we've been holding them to since, yeah. Well, how wonderful it was that Absolutely. you Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, about two and a half billion doses have been distributed, it costs about $3 a dose as compared to Pfizer, which is about $30 a dose. Uh, and unlike Pfizer, it can be you know, readily distributed and doesn't need uh, refrigeration and so on. So I feel absolutely enormously proud of our academics and what we managed to do in the space of a year was pretty, pretty amazing. Yes, it was wonderful. And you've every reason to be enormously proud. And we thank you for doing that because it's, and all the scientists, it's just wonderful. I know there are quite a number of Irish people involved. There are indeed, too. yes, quite a few, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, going to, yeah. I'm going to briefly mention, because I don't know if there are any questions. I think there may be, I'm just not seeing any at the moment on the chat, but um, I think there may be, and I know Professor Richardson has to go at exactly two o'clock New York time, which is seven o'clock our time. But you did, you had, it sounds like a really wonderful relationship with Seamus Heaney. And on Desert Island Discs, you said what book you would like to take. And I think it was the largest collection of Heaney poetry possible and available. Well, I mean, that was the thing about Seamus Heaney. I think an awful lot of people felt they were his friend. He was a man with an extraordinary capacity for friendship. Um, I got to know him many years ago in the early 80s when uh, I was a graduate student at Harvard and he at the time was not famous uh, and used to spend one semester a year at Harvard as a poet in residence. And he was pretty lonely then, his family wasn't with him. He did it for the finance, uh, for the financial security of it. And so um, we got to know each other then and uh, we used to go out for pizza once a week. There was, uh, for, with a couple of, friends, we'd play bocce and go for pizza. And um, so I was in my very early 20s then and just stayed friends with him. Uh, the last time I saw him, um, he and Marie stayed with us um, the end of June of the summer in which he died. So, um, so, but as I say, I wouldn't overstate my friendship with him. I knew him for many years and he was a man with many, many friends and many people who claimed friendship with him. Uh, but 
but one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. And I had enormous affection and admiration for him, as so many people in Ireland did do to this day. Yes, and what a wonderful man to have known as a friend. Yes, oh, it was such a such a privilege to have known him. And in all these different you know, phases of my life as a young grad student, uh, then yeah, I remember him coming to dinner at the house and I was pregnant with my kids. And then I remember him coming and speaking at St. Andrews and and uh, while I was uh, at DC there. So yes, um, mm. an extraordinary man. We can all be very proud, proud of him. And I'm, I know there's, there's a question here asking, what initiatives were most successful in increasing diversity in St. Andrews and maybe in Oxford too? Um, well, we've done a, a I, th I think to have an impact, you have to be organized and operate at many different levels. So forgive me if this is a bit long-winded. Um, so one thing we did, we bring in 1400 students a year uh, for a summer school. Um, these are all kids from deprived backgrounds. We, their schools help us select them. They come for a week, we pay for everything and we demystify Oxford. Mm. They, get, they get a trial interview, they get sit in on tutorials, they get to see what the place is like. I, I, I meet with them every time. I always ask them what surprises them and I always get two variations on the same answer. One is the people are so normal or the, or, or the tutors are so normal. So. So that kind of raises their aspirations, makes them think about applying. We have, uh, we also have a very successful fellowship, uh, scholarship program. So basically any student with um, less than the medium family income gets a very generous scholarship. You know, people think it's more expensive to come to Oxford because it's posh. Actually, it's much less expensive because we have this scholarship program. We also kind of set up some competition amongst the different colleges to, to to be the ones who were best on taking um, kids from deprived backgrounds. Um, we also set up um, a bridging program, something called Opportunity Oxford. So um, these are kids who, who meet the admission requirements, but we turn down thousands of students who meet the admissions requirements, but don't, um, mm -hmm. we don't take. Um, and so this is a bridging program to give additional support to kids from deprived backgrounds who do meet the threshold, but in the past would have been turned down for a safer bet. Um, and so we bring in, we've got about 200 of those kids this year. And then we're introducing next year a program we've been running on a small scale, which is actually, we've learned a lot from the TAP program at Trinity. Um, a foundation year essentially for for kids who don't make the grade but who we think could with a year's support and mm -hmm. um, so a raft of, of different initiatives and then of course making sure that once they get to oxford they're successful so i did variations on the same thing at, at st andrews so it's mm -hmm. a multi-pronged approach you need to be really focused you need to be systematic we also send kids uh current students out to schools all over the country because they have much more credibility talking to 17 year olds than I do. Um, we have links with schools, the length and breadth of the country. So uh, yeah, it's a multifaceted but, but focused approach. Well, it's on, it sounds very effective. And um, I promised you I'd finish on the hour on the bottom. And I didn't even get near. You said, we'll never fill an hour. And I said, well, we could fill four hours. I could fill an hour. We could do an hour in terrorism. I could do, I could do hours with you. Um, but I know you're off to the Carnegie Corporation. You've got to be president of that. You've already 
been involved with that very heavily and that will be education and it's a philanthropic organization and and that's very much it sounds like you'll be back in your continuing what you're doing in oxford in terms of diversity there's just one question before you go somebody's asked well there's more than one but some coming in now and what advice would you have for women um, who are trying to juggle career and family commitments um well, I would say it gets easier. Um, I mean, the real tragedy is that so many women just decide this is this is too much. Why am I doing this? Uh, especially in the academic world where you're not actually paid that much and where it's really tough. I would say, you know, hang tough. It does get easier. And I would push your departments for, you know, childcare support, push your partner to be more engaged, try lobby for you know, if you're on a tenure track system, lengthening the tenure track system. Um, uh, but yeah, hang in there because it, it really does get easier and it sets you up, as I say, it sets you up for life because you're, everything you do afterwards will be easier than, than this. Um, that's probably an unsatisfying answer as, a, as an issue of public policy. I think we, you know, we, we absolutely have to do better in providing affordable high quality childcare for people who i mean i have i can't tell you the legions of stories i could tell you mm -hmm. uh, that would horrify you about my my parenting um my, my kids all survived kids are very resilient so um you know my, we went through more nannies than um mary poppins family than the banks family and mary poppins and my kids all turned out fine they're very resilient I'm sure they're fine. We might interview them next year for the, <laughs> the other the other side of the story. But um, um, uh, uh, just before you go, um, do you ever get time to play golf? Because I know you're a golfer. Oh, I don't. I don't at all. Um, <laughs> no. And I, I'm. It takes up too much time. I I need to. I don't have enough time to take my exercise in such a leisurely way. I need to do it more intensely at the gym or something. Yeah, I was wondering. And did you ever learn to surf? After I all did, that? of course, of course. Yes. Well, I don't know. I don't know how you must have had your head down and your nose in the books. You were driving well, not in California. Car. I know you got your hands on a vintage car that you picked because you thought it was the worst looking one. It was a 1957 something or other. Nash Metropolitan, did. yes. Okay, Nash Metropolitan. You were cruising around California. Was it a convertible? No, it wasn't a convertible. I, I, I still aspire to have to okay. around California in a convertible. Yes. But you suffered on in the 1957 Nash Nash Metropolitan, oh, and you learned to surf while all the while knocking down all the academic skittles. So um, that's that's um, that's quite a well-rounded approach. Um, so we are just coming up to the hour and i'd like to say thank you so much we've never met before and it's quite a lot to ask somebody to answer all these questions and to open themselves as i've asked you to do and i'd like to thank you for your openness and your warmth as well which comes out in bucket loads and for giving so generously of your time because i'd say there is no time and so thank you very much professor thank you Emer. and, and thank you Thank you, Imer. And thank you, Aoife and Aoife, for all the work you've done putting this event together. And thanks to all of you for, for tuning in. It's 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 so much less satisfactory than seeing people in person. But um, I know. Thank you Hopefully we, we get you over here. And um, 
next year perhaps and as a guest you can come to the dinner at least I think you well earned that so thank you also um Professor Richardson has mentioned Aoife McNichol I'd like to thank also Aoife McNichol and my colleagues in the Bar of Ireland's Equality and Resilience Committee for organizing this event and to the patient and ever cheerful um, Aoife Kinarney of the events team thank you very much Aoife and to all of you for joining us and we wish you well and that brings to a conclusion this evening's event unless Aoife would like to say a final goodbye to you all so I hope we do meet again Professor Richardson and thank, thank you, you very much, much. Thank, you. Really thank you very much thank you all so much